Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. This week, we're continuing our series of great, awesome NS German military commanders and their exploits in Russia and around Europe. So I'm here with Hans, and we just read Field Marshal Erich von Manstein's Lost Victories, which was a book written, I guess it was in the 1950s, after the war, by a man generally regarded as one of the best commanders in all of history, but certainly in uh, the German army of World War II. People debate whether him or Rommel or Guderian or, I don't know, a couple other names usually come up. But Manstein is generally regarded as, as a genius tactician and, and operational leader. And he's also one of the guys who is often seen as being responsible for the so-called myth of the clean Wehrmacht because of this book. But just to give you a little bit of a some background biography, this is from Wikipedia. Manstein, born to an aristocratic Prussian family with a long history of military service, Manstein joined the army at a young age and saw service on both the Western and Eastern Front during World War I. He rose to the rank of captain by the end of the war. He was active in the interwar period, helping Germany rebuild its armed forces. In September of 1939, during the invasion of Poland, he was serving as chief of staff to Gerd von Rundstedt's Army Group South. Adolf Hitler chose Manstein's strategy for the invasion of France in May 1940, a plan refined by Franz Halder and other members of the German high command. So after that, he, so he participated in the invasion of Poland, the invasion of France, and he was the guy that really came up with the plan that defeated the French and British armies in northern France. And then he participated in the invasion of Russia. In early on in the invasion, he was in uh, with Army Group North near Leningrad, and then he was involved in the invasion of Crimea and successfully took over Crimea from the Russians in an eight-month campaign. And then he's most famous probably for his participation in leading Army Group South. Well, originally Army. There were several army groups, Army Group Don, Army Group A and B, and then united into one giant army group put under Manstein's command after the defeat of the Sixth Army at Stalingrad, where Manstein had to manage a total catastrophic situation and try to bring back German forces before getting overwhelmed by the Soviets, and had to do so like despite a lot of resistance from Hitler and from other officers who didn't see things his way. And then uh, after that, he also was the leader of the Southern Prong in the attack at Kursk. So he was a man who was on all fronts, uh, or nearly all fronts. I guess he wasn't in the Med at any point, but he fought in all the uh, major German campaigns of World War II and had a lot of interesting things to say. So let's just start off with an easy question. Is there any, what other commanders might have been up on Manstein's level? You know, that's... uh... That is a tough question. I'm not really sure because I don't think, I mean, I don't think that you can rate Rommel up there with him because Rommel never held a command that was as, I, I guess, as consequential as Manstein's. Like being in charge of Army Group South or, you know, Army Group Don or, or whatever, you know, basically being being in a, in a position of, uh, of, of being a army or higher level commander on... The, the southern part of the Eastern Front, that's where all the major fighting was taking place. That is where the most genius was required of a commander and where they had the toughest job against... The highest stakes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, against a very, very hyper-aggressive and very well-equipped 
Soviet group of forces. I don't think anyone is quite as remarkable as, as Manstein. I mean, like there's a few who I think would be sort of candidates for really great commanders, maybe Kesselring in Italy mm-hmm. uh, as a defensive commander. But the other army group commanders, Keitel, um, Rundstedt would maybe be a candidate. Um, but Manstein was the most remarkable. I mean, it, one of his nicknames is Hitler's Fireman. Um, being the guy who had to run around and deal with with all of these developing crises uh, on the Eastern Front sort of as they arose. So I I really think he's kind of in a league of his own. He's absolutely one of the best military commanders of all time. All right. Well, let's let's get into his individual campaigns then, shall we? What I like about Manstein's book is that in each part, he often gives what the other side should have done to win which I think is a lot more interesting than some of the war memoirs, which just are a, a play-by-play of, of every movement and, and you have to like really follow along with the map. I mean, you have to do that here too. He gives you the play-by-play, but he also gives you the big uh, strategic picture of if I were the enemy, how would I have tried to win this? And what he says for Poland, I think was interesting because the Poles tried to defend pretty much every piece of their country. They tried to defend the Danzig corridor. They tried to defend... Yeah, Breslau, or well, I guess they didn't have Breslau, but they tried to defend the South and even like that sort of projection into Germany. And they just couldn't do it with the amount of men they had because, for one thing, Germany had like strategically could just easily envelop them because they had East Prussia to the north, they had Pomerania, Silesia, and they could just attack from all sides. And so the Poles, what Manstein says regarding the Poles is that they should have not tried to defend the, the, outlying areas just tr- tried to preserve their combat force and like hold out for six to eight weeks and hope that the Western allies could in- intervene because given their strategic situation, that was like the only way they were not going to be overrun. But he does concede that like, well, okay, I know for, he says, I know for political reasons why that would have been impossible for any Polish government to actually do. Right. I mean, he says he says effectively that any Polish government that that would abandon you know, these valuable territories in Poznan or other areas um, would have been thrown out overnight. He says, or he, he remarks that maybe someone with the prestige of like a Marshall Pilsudski mm. could have pulled it off, uh, but the Poles didn't have anyone like that after his death in, I think, 35. Uh, and that, yeah, basically the Poles only had one rational course of action. They could not hope to to resist a the the concentration of military forces that the Germans were able to bring against them. They were too outnumbered. The Germans were more combat effective than than the Polish army. They had, you know, the air power. They had everything. The Poles were going to lose that fight. And he says that under those circumstances, the only thing that they could hope for was the intervention of the Western allies. And and that, that would only avail them anything at all if they managed to avoid being destroyed up to the point where the Western allies could intervene. That meant that they had to accept territorial losses, pull back like behind the Vistula, behind some river lines, uh, defend where they could, preserve their combat power, and that hopefully, if, if the Western allies were forthcoming with an offensive, uh, they could gain that back at some later time. But that what they did... Uh, what they actually did 
was hopeless, even if the Western Allies did intervene. Because trying to defend the frontiers meant they were going to be destroyed anyways. Right, and then they were either at the mercy of the Germans or the Russians. Exactly. You know, he, he does also mention like how much force the Germans... I mean, the Germans were taking a huge risk by invading Poland the way they did. Uh, they had to denude their Western Front, and uh, it really was like a matter of luck that the Allies didn't decide to attack Germany in the West... Uh, sooner. I mean, I guess they the British didn't have any forces really there, but uh, it was, I guess, something of a risk for Hitler to take uh, massing that many troops in the West or in, in uh, Poland. It was something of a risk, but I think it was calculated in that the Western allies were also not ready for a serious campaign and that it, it made sense for the French to do what they did, which was launch a sort of probing assault into the the, the West Wall, mm-hmm. uh, and then immediately fall back to the Maginot Line. Test the Germans, see if they could scare them into pulling forces off. Uh, but the French were not prepared to fight a pitched battle in German territory forward of the Maginot. That, that was never going to happen. The Poles were mistaken for thinking that it would. But of course, then it, it returns to what Manstein says, that even if they were expecting uh, an Allied offensive, they had not prepared for that contingency either. Yeah. Well, so going moving to the Western Front and we're going to have we have a whole there's a whole bunch of like we're going to kind of move through these things uh, front by front or campaign by campaign. But there's a whole bunch of like sort of sub themes here on uh, what did Manstein, you know, what were his relation? What was his relationship with Hitler like? Um, what were some of his strategic and, and tactical uh, thoughts? And, and and he's actually still very influential, uh, even despite the massive changes in technology and and ideology he's still uh, believe it or not still read at an army war college i believe so oh. yeah maybe that I'm maybe not, that's changed in the last like five years but i'm not quite sure if it's mandatory reading anymore but i know for sure that it uh it regularly goes out on the sort of commandant's like suggested reading list in in the marines in the army um it's still very widely read by military professionals today yeah, so uh moving We'll go on to the French campaign because this is really where Manstein uh, makes a name for for himself. So basically, the original plan for the invasion of France that the Germans were going to do was not quite a carbon copy of the old 1914 Schlieffen plan, but it was very similar. They they basically wanted to line up their army uh, from the Low Countries down to the Swiss border and then do a big sweeping movement across the low countries across uh belgium and netherlands and then come down and wrap the french army up in the north and then try to like encircle them somewhere uh in the south or like in the area of maybe not sedan exactly but that's the 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 meme is to but to to encircle them on the wide axis to to sweep down north of paris yeah basically um well so i think that the the original plan for the battle in the West was superficially similar to the Schlieffen plan. Um, but I think the key distinction is that it was far less ambitious. In 1940, they actually did not envision uh, winning a decisive victory to the extent that they would be able to move against Paris from the north. The original plan was to basically invade the Low Countries and fight a battle with the Western allies in the open country of, like, Flanders, basically. Uh, familiar old yeah. battlefields from World War I. Um, 
but they did not expect this victory to be decisive or to lead to an immediate conclusion to the campaign. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the critical thing about it. Monstein's plan... Well, it's kind of crazy that they would even put forth that plan to begin with. Uh, you would think, yeah, well, I mean, what's your point of... What's the point of invading? You, you're giving up the strategic moral uh, position by invading the Low Countries. You're you're already like that's already a huge burden on you to do that, and then you're only doing it to get into a land battle with the French and the British in Flanders. Yeah, well, they they figured that they couldn't win in one campaign. That's that's basically the point. I guess they just hadn't even thought that ambitiously. Right. They were trying to gain a position in you know, the open, open country of like Belgium, basically, to gain a position for further campaigns into northern France, right? They were they were rerunning uh, or, or retreading the old battlefields of World War One. And they believed that in those circumstances, there was some way that future campaigns. So were- I remember Manstein mentions in the in the talk about France that the that original plan one of the ideas was to control the the channel ports. If you could get like Dunkirk yes. and and maybe a few of the other ones right there on the channel, then you could threaten Britain or you could get airfields to threaten Britain. Right. And I think that was also born of experience in the First World War where they did have submarines and small naval craft operating out of uh, Ostend, which is a, a channel port in Belgium, mm-hmm. um, which caused some consternation to the British back in 1916 1917 um so i think yeah that was that was an objective and just generally to gain territory from which they could conduct further operations right because as long as they were bottled up behind their own frontiers they had no way whatsoever of of conducting a real war against the western allies and they were just eventually going to be blockaded and and cut off right so what was manstein's plan so Manstein's plan comes uh, sort of uh, through through an interesting uh, uh, series of coincidences. Um, essentially, the plans for the invasion of the Low Countries are intercepted by the Western Allies. There's a uh, an officer carrying a copy of the plans who is uh, basically. He's, he's in a, a night flight in one of the, the German small, like, attache planes. Uh, he's shot down over Belgium. And the Germans have to assume that the plans have been captured. They don't know for what, sure, wasn't but they there have like to a, Wasn't there a standard operating procedure or an order that had gone out to not carry around the, the operational plans? I'm not sure. I feel like I remember him saying that. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, if there was, it was not followed as yeah. quickly as it should have been. Although, again, is turned out to be very uh, serendipitous for the Germans because this original plan was really not a very good one and probably would not have have turned out well in the end. Um, So this basically opens up the field for a a new proposal for an alternative plan. Monstein has been kicking around this idea in his head for a while and now gets this opportunity to propose it directly to Hitler. Um, I mean, first to high command, but then when high command is resistant to his ideas directly to Hitler. Uh, and his plan is the famous, uh, uh, often called the sickle cut or the the Ardennes plan, basically, mm-hmm. which is to thrust powerful armored forces through the Ardennes, across the Meuse at Sedan, 
and from there on to the sea, uh, to the Channel Coast, that is, and cut off the northern group of Allied forces. The other interesting thing is that originally his plan is more or less accepted, but the idea of of dashing directly to the Channel Coast is sort of put on hold. Uh, they agree with with using the armored forces to grab the bridgehead at Sedan, uh, but they the, the the high command is still skeptical about the idea that they could cut off the entire northern wing of the Allies. Yeah, I mean they they Hitler and the high command accepted this plan like in stages. They would they'd yes. give Manstein a little bit. Like at first they were so there were two army groups uh, lined up there. There was uh, Army Group B, which was the German far right which would have been responsible for the main push through Belgium and well, was, and, and through the Netherlands and through the Netherlands. Yep. And then there was Army Group. A, which was just sort of sitting there at like Luxembourg, Sedan, southern Belgium. And its only job in the original plan would be to cover the left flank of Army Group B as it swept all the way across the Low Countries. Right. The main effort was going to be with Army Group B in the north. But then in the in the Manstein plan, he wanted to have three armies put in Army Group A and make that the, uh, the point of main effort. And so one army would uh, affect the crossing at the uh, at the Meuse, one army would be there to counteract any f- French thrust in that uh, going the opposite direction, and then one army would be to attack uh, north to the Channel ports. Right, because that was the other thing too. He was looking at it. He was looking at the overall situation and thinking, well, like if I were the French, what would I do? And it makes sense. Like if you're the French, you ought to attack the Germans right there because maybe you could, uh, you know, break their uh, their left wing. Right. Or sorry, their right one. The, the Allied plan was well known um, that it involved the advance into Belgium and the occupation of various uh, of, of lines behind various water yeah, obstacles. Not, not at all. A, not at all an, a violation of Belgian neutrality. Well, I mean, I think I'm Bel- just point- Belgian neutrality at that point was sort of a, a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I just I just have to throw that in there to <laughs> you know rip on the British for their. Uh, yeah, of course. The um, fakeness of their yeah, their they, they had already planned to occupy Belgium, sort of whether the Belgians wanted it or not, at the first sign of a of a German incursion. Um, but anyways, and and of course, the other big part of Manstein's plan is that it involves concentrating all of the Panzer divisions that they had on hand, uh, or or the majority of them, into its own. Uh, basically army-level formation, which is Panzer Group Kleist, uh, under the command of, of General von Kleist. Uh, and that's, that is intended to be the spearhead of, uh, of Army Group A in this, uh, in this operation. They are to make the initial breakthrough, cross the Meuse, and open the way for the infantry armies following on behind them. Um, so, of course, we know that this operation is basically single-handedly responsible for the German victory in the West. At the time, uh, as we've already already said, the German command is is still sort of skeptical about this. They approve right, the initial like, phases of the plan. You gotta, you, I mean, to give them their credit, like it's it's a stretch of the imagination to think that you could move that many forces through an area like the Ardennes, through hill country, through uh, heavily wooded country, cross a river, across a major river, and then like come in behind the enemy uh it just it seems it's like a huge logistical problem but i guess yeah. manstein had, had already worked it out when he proposed the plan and all, guderian also thought it was feasible based on what he knew about armored forces 
Munstein has like a a sort of disdain for logistical problems that will will also um, come up in uh, some of the future campaigns that we'll discuss. Well, because he was so good at solving them, right? Right, exactly. He just he, it's like it's not a problem for him. It's like logistics, you know, whatever we can we can solve that, right? There are ways, dude. You know, you need uh, you need ammunition. I can get you ammunition. You need gas. There's always more gas. Um, and and so his his big thing is just getting forces to where they need to be to either intercept or outpace or somehow throw the enemy off balance. Uh, and that's his big thing here is once you get those armored forces behind the main allied effort, they're going to be all turned around. We're going to be able to move faster than them, counterattack any groups of forces that appear to threaten us. If we keep them on balance, we keep moving, we'll, we'll win. And, uh, and he's proven right in this instance. Well, so, uh, how did he manage to convince Hitler? Because, I mean, we'll see this throughout his career. I mean, he, throughout the the whole war, he was butting heads with Hitler. Uh, well, some, not always butting heads, but often he was butting heads with Hitler. And so how did he get manage to get Hitler to accept this, you know, fairly daring plan? I mean, Hitler was, everyone said that Hitler was a gambler. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I mean, Manstein points this out throughout the book that Hitler wasn't as much of a gambler as people give him credit for. You know, I think there's a couple of explanations that are that are possible. I think one is that this plan was actually so good that Hitler just saw the the, the logic of it and, and approved of it. Uh, and that maybe some of the later plans on which they butted heads with Hitler, uh, maybe those plans weren't as good. Maybe Hitler was was the wise one here. That's a possible explanation. Uh, also, like you've just suggested, um, you know, I think in these early phases... Hitler understood very clearly the rationale that Manstein was making, which was that if you don't stake it all on victory, then we're going to wind up in the same position we were in in the First World War. We're going to be in a positional battle. They have more resources than us. We're going to lose. You have to you have to risk it all. Right. right? Um, and that at this point in the war, Hitler was more willing than he was later on to go all in, risk it all on one daring operation. I also think that one of the, the factors that's affecting this is at this point, Hitler's attention is focused entirely on this campaign. Obviously, when you're talking about Russia later in the war in 42 or 43, Hitler, in his role as supreme commander, has his attention split over multiple fronts, right? He might not be as amenable in, in those later instances to when Manstein proposes some kind of daring operation to him to approve it because he can't risk everything on one section of the front in Russia. He's worried about an allied landing. He's worried about the Mediterranean. He's worried about the submarine war. Uh, and so just from a psychological point of view, I think at this early stage when France is the big enemy that has to be conquered, this this ambitious plan falls on more receptive ears. Yeah, and he's, he's much more focused. That does make sense because you you got to figure by 1943, Hitler's managing a war across the entire uh, you know European continent and sort of beyond it as well. He's being pulled in 12 different directions, you know, which which maybe ties into some of the arguments that Manstein makes about uh, the need for a real chief of staff. For, All right, for yeah, I was gonna later. I was gonna bring that up. Let's let's get into that. So. Before or at the beginning of the war, 
or before the war, there was a high command of the German army called the OKH, Oberkommando des Heeres, and that was responsible. That was like the main staff planning organization for the entire German military. For for the army, I mean, for the, the, the navy was separate, and of course the Luftwaffe was under Goering, but that was in its its infancy. Of course, I mean the Luftwaffe only comes around after Hitler's rise to power. The OKH, the Oberkommando des Heeres, that that is like the main instrument of German military power. Right. Well, yeah, because their main anything they were doing is mainly going to be with the army. Right. Uh, but Hitler sets up a superior organ. Uh, Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, OKW, as like the sort of a, a general staff for all armed forces, or at least or what you might notionally, call a, right? What you might call a supreme command is, in theory, at least superior to all of the branches. Um, for America, this would be, I guess, like the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, kind of as, as right, because America doesn't have a general staff because we're you know democratic and stuff. Right, right. Um, but as as the the one thing that unifies all of the separate military branches, which is especially important in light of air power. That's really why um, most countries would eventually adopt some kind of uh, uh, military organ like this. It was easy enough when you just had the Navy and the Army and their tasks were basically separate. Right. So how does setting up OK? I mean, when, uh, how does setting up OKW jumble things up so manstein is very critical of this on one hand he repeatedly states the importance of having a supreme command that's responsible for grand strategy basically and for coordinating the activities of all the different branches and all the different fronts the right this conforms with the military print or the uh, principle of war uh, unity of command of course yeah. yes um but the problem with okw is that, for one thing, there's not an actual chief of staff running things, which would be sort of the German tradition. Uh, yeah, Molke like, or, yeah. Under the Kaiser or, or, yeah, even under the, the kings of Prussia, um, you you had the sovereign, of course, the, the king, the, the supreme commander, uh, but his chief of staff was really responsible for running the affairs of the general staff. When Hitler created OKW, he didn't, install anyone who had that level of authority. He basically ran it himself personally. And in fact, rather than rather than this effectively creating a competent planning organization, a competent strategic organization, all it did was demote the existing organization, OKH, into a subordinate status where previously they had been competent to advise Hitler on strategic matters. Uh, by turning them into a subordinate command directly underneath himself as supreme commander, he restricted even further their freedom, uh, their, both their freedom of action and their ability to advise him on serious issues and to insist on their own point of view to some extent. And Manstein is also critical of this because uh, after the establishment of OKW, Hitler at uh, put OKW in charge of the Norwegian theater. So he started to have a geographical distinction between what OKW was responsible for and what OKH was responsible for. And then OKW started to take over more and more theaters, 
until the point where basically OKH was only involved with the Eastern Front and OKW was overseeing everything else and in addition was on top of OKH. Right. So it made the whole command structure very confusing and again interfered with the ability to and there's there's also just no one overseeing the overall strategic picture of the war. There's no one right, who can exactly say, what I was gonna say there's no one who can say, okay, well, we're looking at all of our resources. Uh, we can order the commander uh, whoever's in France or whoever's in Norway to free up like two divisions because they don't need that many. We're going to transfer them to the Eastern Front. Instead, you just have Hitler overseeing each of these every single thing. And if he doesn't, if he's not able to process all that information, which you know no person could be expected to really. Uh, do that themselves, then uh, each of these like subordinate organizations like Norway or France are just going to say, well, I need more. I need all the troops I've got. I can't spare any for the Eastern Front because they want to look right. good doing their jobs properly. And that's that's the issue is it's not it's not just that Hitler is taking on this role of commander. And Manstein is actually fairly even handed about this. He does, of course, have a lot of gripes with with Hitler's uh, conduct of the war, especially later on. Um, but he he says something along the lines of like I'm not going to uh, do him the indignity of of doing what some of the other German commanders did and refer to him as you know the Austrian corporal or whatever or, yeah, or say that he's incompetent right. because he wasn't. Manstein doesn't think that he was incompetent. Uh, in more than a few cases, he he actually remarks favorably on his understanding of the operational requirements of uh of you know the various forces involved uh and that he listened quite attentively when monstein explained things uh i mean he does of course say that later on this this tendency worsened um or the the tendency of hitler's to discount the or to like pretend to listen to somebody and then just kind of you yeah, know whatever yeah, he does say that but really what monstein is complaining about here is that Hitler removed anyone who was competent enough to advise him well and to stand up to him when he was when when either he was misinformed or making some kind of mistake, um, which I think again like that's different from just objecting right, Hitler having the overall command. Yeah, that, no, that's I, relatively. Well, I think that's a much better objection too. It's it is the the uh, head of state should sort of be the supreme commander, or at least he needs to have a grasp of the military realities, uh, as well as the economic and everything. He needs to have the whole picture of the entire uh, nation. But at the same time, you can't expect one guy to perform all of the mental calculations and understand, even as much of, of a genius as Hitler was, and Manstein says this repeatedly, that he had an uncanny memory for uh, production figures and details oh, yeah. his, of, of everything. His command of all the economic data and, and you know, his, his understanding of the progress of the war to any point, all the battles that had been fought, like his, his powers of, of memory and recollection were impressive, Manstein says. Uh, it's just I think his complaints are standing more for the point that he wasn't a trained staff officer. Well, you, right? He was making complaints about the org chart. It's yeah. Here's yeah. Hitler, <laughs> and then here's like fifty people support, reporting directly to Hitler. Right. And then, of course, also like later on, he's he's saying that there are issues again complaining about the org chart, where like Hitler is the supreme commander. He's also personally commanding 
uh, Army Group A, <laughs> which is supposed to be under the OKH, which is under Hitler. So he's his own subordinate and superior. And he's, and he's how directly commanding, what, what, like four or six army corps or something? I think it was three or four armies in, in uh, Army Group A. Oh, okay. So <laughs> a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the later army group A, you know, redesignated the 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 forces in the Caucasus. Later right. on, Hitler took personal control of that army group, which Munstein says basically meant there was no army group command. It was just the individual armies uh, acting on Hitler's personal orders. Yeah, I mean that's I don't know. Uh, that seems kind of nuts. I mean, just having uh, led people on a you know much uh, more modest capacity myself, uh, trying to lead like directly control 50 people at yourself would be completely insane right but i mean you want on the other hand like of course i'm not going to like completely criticize uh adolf hitler because like you understand why he had to do stuff like this uh in a way people screwing up things all the time hitler sort of developed a natural aversion to or uh, instinctive revert uh suspicion of people and I mean, a lot of historians, as uh, you know, we've talked about before, have suggested that Hitler was maybe right in uh, in how suspicious he was of his subordinates and how much he took from them. But you would think with a guy like Manstein, who'd really proved himself, that he would have given him a bit more of a free hand. And he did sometimes. I mean, I think more than some other commanders. Manstein tended to get his way, maybe not the majority of the time, but more than others, uh, perhaps. Um and I think, and again, like Manstein gives him gives him some credit. While he's criticizing him, he gives him some credit for sometimes making correct decisions or being more farsighted than some of the other commanders. Um, in fact, one of the things that he remarks on is that uh, Hitler's decision in 1941 to issue uh, basically the the stand your ground order when the generals wanted to retreat. He says, well, he became very fixated on that and and. Going forward, he thought the solution to every problem right. was order them to stand their ground, don't allow a Right, because these guys are just being pussies, and right. I just need to order them to stand their ground, it'll be fine. Right, but but at the same time sort of admits that, well, the reason that he's so convinced of that is because in the winter of 1941, he was very correct in issuing that order, Yeah. right? And then he came to see, you know, that was his hammer and, uh, you know, viewed every problem as a nail. Right. So let's talk about uh, Manstein's. Well, what we can maybe we'll come back to some of the more minor campaigns, but the biggest one of his whole career was the, the cleanup after Stalingrad. Yeah, I mean that was a very. So why don't you well, could, could you just like briefly outline uh, outline what the situation was in say December of forty two, and then we'll kind of work through uh, the the cleanup of that sure well i'll just i'll briefly give a little background on how they wound up in this situation in the first place yeah, yeah i mean perfect. most of our listeners will know but just to to sort of walk us through the basics uh you know the invasion of russia in 1941 uh the main advance is is uh first in the north where they reach leningrad and uh and draw close to moscow uh forces get diverted into the south to clean up uh so a, a soviet concentration around kiev where they captured, successful. well, like a million Soviets? Somewhere between a million and half a million. I don't remember the exact numbers, but a, a very sizable Soviet force. Um, and very few of them managed to break through and get away. Uh, 
one of I think actually the largest encirclement operation ever. Uh, it's certainly larger than Stalingrad. Mm. Um, anyways, Monstein at this point is commander of. Or when when is he made commander Army Group South? Not until I think fall of forty two. Okay. At least no. It was, okay. He was, but he was because he was in Leningrad before that. Right. Right. That's right. So, anyways, Army Group South at that point is holding a position uh, close to Rostov. It's on the Sea of Azov, uh, running generally in a straight line north to meet up with Army Group Center, which is in front of Moscow. Yeah, I, I guess let me just interject here. So, there's a lot of geography of uh, eastern Ukraine that we're going to end up mentioning, which thankfully we all know now thanks to uh, current uh, events. But basically, uh, the things... The things you need to know are the Don River flows roughly south into the Sea of Azov, which is that little tiny sea to the. It's part of the Black Sea. It's to the east of Crimea. Of Crimea. Yeah, it's yeah. it's lot. It's where Mariupol is, and the main city on the southern part of the Don is Rostov na Don, and that's like the the linchpin of the whole area. If you control, it's a major industrial center. If you control Rostov, you like control. You can. You have you have to have that piece, and then just briefly, uh, the Donets River flows basically from west to east, but it's parallel and to the south of the Don, and then it empties into the Don. Yeah, I mean, if you don't like, you, you know, these these just no, look at a map. Yeah, I mean. look look at a map. No, but the, yeah, no, but you should you know. This vis- has been vis- in the news look, a lot. You no, should, no, hold on. You should have a general understanding. Vi- visual learning is bullshit. Like, if you can't do auditory learning, like, just hear a description and, like, <laughs> picture it in your mind, you haven't, like, developed your autism far enough. Okay. So, <laughs> anyways, the, the things that matter here are that there's a large bend in the Don River uh, that goes through Rostov. Uh, and the Volga on the other side, which is uh, runs through Stalingrad and then down to the Caspian Sea also bends towards the Don. The Don bends towards the east. The Volga bends towards the west. So it's like two fat people like putting their guts up to each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's this there's this point uh, sort of between Rostov and Stalingrad where those two rivers are, are the nearest to each other or in that general vicinity. Um, and south of those rivers is the Caucasus. So Rostov is really the gateway to the Caucasus, and it's Rostov that they seize in '42 that opens the way for the next part of the plan, uh, which is the German offensive in 1942 called Case Blue, Fall Blau, uh, in which the Germans make a dash for the oil in the Caucasus, and on the other flank go for Stalingrad to protect their, their flank along the Volga River. Um, so hopefully everyone also, has yeah, a, yeah, also a, cuts. a basic grasp of the geography here at this yeah. point. Um, anyway, so Monstein is in command of... Is it Army Group Don yet, or is that only after Stalingrad? I think they formed Army Group Don after Stalingrad. Before that, it was Army Group South, which was split into Army Groups A and B. So was he at that point just an Army-level commander? Or uh, I don't remember. Yeah, he was Commander 11th Army, okay. right? And... So, well, we kind of skipped over Crimea. We did skip over Crimea. That's all right. In the meantime, right. before this, he'd like, you know, 
personally conquered Crimea. Yeah. So let me get let me get back on track. In the 1942 campaign, the Germans, of course, make this dash into the Caucasus, which is largely successful, uh, sort of almost unexpectedly. So, um, given what everyone knows happens next, uh, which is the the Sixth Army, which has been part of Army Group B, going for Stalingrad and the Volga River. Um, is flanked on either side of the city by allied forces. Uh, Romanian 3rd and 4th Army, Italian 8th Army, I think, are the main forces involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Soviets, and Manstein says it took no great amount of genius to realize this opportunity, uh, understand that the forces around Stalingrad are weak. The Germans don't have reserves because they've been thrown far to the south and into the Caucasus where they're not uh, going to be available to counter this. The Soviets make a massive armored push through those allied armies, which basically break immediately and and just run away yeah. uh, as soon as their front lines are broken. Um, the Italians especially. Rommel, or Manstein has some favorable things to say about the Romanians. He says, you know, their training is out of date. They don't have good NCOs, whatever. But they're good fighters, and their commanders are are soldierly men. The Italians, he has uh, no such kind of words for mm. but <laughs> anyways, so the 6th Army is surrounded in Stalingrad, and this is a first-rate disaster. Manstein gets put in charge of Army Group Don, which is basically made up of what forces they can scrape together and the remnants of the Allied armies. And it's like kind of arrayed behind the other two still the remnants of Army Group B and, and Army Group A. Yes. Um, because so it's, it's on the Don there while those the Army Group A is still out in the Caucasus and B is still like spread out through yeah. the, the like Volga Don uh, well, B, region. Also, Army Group B is basically shattered at this point. They have almost nothing left. Uh, Monstein says they basically have one weakened German army and the remnants of a few Italian formations. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's sort of holding he, he's holding the last line between the Soviet counterattack and the sea. And if they reach Rostov, the entire Army Group A in the Caucasus is cut off and would be destroyed. Um, So he's the last line of defense. He basically manages to hold the Soviets off, um, although he he remarks that he might not have even been able to do that if the Soviets had been really determined to attack. He sort of finds that a little bit inexplicable why they didn't. um, Or rather... He commends the forces holding out in Stalingrad for yeah for tying down tying down yeah. enough forces that they didn't get the entire Army Group A cut off, um, which he he says sort of you know was was the best the best thing that they could have done that yeah once well I mean short of breaking out but once that yeah once that wasn't possible the best they could do was just. Uh, fight long enough to tie down because they could have surrendered earlier. Yeah. And... I mean, he he highly commends their sacrifice for saving like the rest of the German army. It's only due to their stubbornness that the war wasn't decided then and there. Um. Anyways, as uh, as 1942 draws to a close, Manstein is put in charge of the attempt to break out the forces in Stalingrad. And or well, 
Well, to assist Actually, it by by meeting them, right? To to push up his his troops up to like this where the Stalingrad uh, Sixth Army was encircled. Well, it's interesting how you want to characterize this because High Command at the time uh, was persisting in the belief that what they what they should do or what the, that the best course of action would be for Monstein to link up with the forces in Stalingrad and then continue to hold the city, which Monstein thought was insane. Because the Soviet forces were to his north and threatening to, yeah, cut cut turn, a, cut any flank. I mean, this is like a hundred. I mean, this is hundreds of miles from Stalingrad to like Kharkov. Basically, is his nor- would would be in that situation his northern front. Right. I mean, what he was worried about was like, okay, we're going to break through and, and link up with them in Stalingrad, and then the Soviet forces are going to sweep around behind us, reach the Sea of Azov. And then not only is the 6th Army in Stalingrad cut off, so is Army Group A, and so am I. Yeah. And then we're all screwed. Um, so he thinks he thinks High Command is basically insane for advocating this and says, look, we just got to get those guys out. That's that's what he wants to accomplish here. Um, and, of course, as we all know, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. They're not able to break out the 6th Army in Stalingrad, and they eventually surrender after months of resistance uh very tenacious resistance and so monstein wants to answer the question why right so monstein gives a few reasons for that one of them is the sort of as i've said the refusal to acknowledge reality that the soviet forces are threatening to the north not the south that they're going to cut the whole wing of the army group off and High Command and Hitler are persisting in saying, well, we want Army Group A to stay in the Caucasus, or after they realize that that's untenable, they still want them to stay in the Kuban region right? as like a bridgehead for future offensive operations. Um, but that, that can only work if you still hold Rostov. Uh, and I mean, Manstein mentions this, so you can't really continue to uh, support Army Group A in the Kuban, that is the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian, just through like the the Straits of Kerak between from Crimea. Right. right. So I mean, you have at to. At that ha- time, of course, there's no bridge across yeah. the Straits, and there's no serious port facilities either. And so you have to hold Rostov. And so Manstein, what he talks about is is that he's so he's so low on troops when when this is happening, as the Russians are have surrounded Stalingrad and are pushing toward Rostov, sort of lazily like a slow bear. And he's like, he has to be uh, shifting his troops from the south to the north uh, to try to defeat like Soviet formations wherever they are. Uh, and he just doesn't have enough to like cover every everything. Right. And so what he's trying to tell them is this is not about holding Rostov anymore. This is about saving the entire army group. Like they can't they can't stay in the Kuban. Right. I'm in danger of being cut off myself. I can't hold their flank and my own against this this amount of forces. I certainly can't do those two things while at the same time trying to break through to Stalingrad and hold that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're spreading themselves too thin. What Monstein wants to do is get everyone out and pull back. And this is this is a theme across the whole campaign that Monstein is a huge advocate of uh, what you could call elastic defense or the backhand blow. What he wants to do is basically abandon that southern wing of uh, of the front draw in the soviets while reinforcing the 
northern wing of Army Group South that is in the region of Kharkov. You should also know where this is if you don't already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, north Northeastern Ukraine. Correct. Um, so he wants to reinforce that area, which is where he thinks the decisive battle is going to take place. That's where the Soviet reserves are heading after Stalingrad. Um, and draw them in in the south and then hit them on the backhand. That is, once they have extended themselves and opened their own flank, hit them then, pin them against the sea and destroy them. Whereas what High Command wants to do is hold the south, which Monstein thinks is risking the north, and then the Soviets are going to come in through the north, pin the Germans against the sea, and they're going to either have to pull back or be cut off. Right. Yeah, you know, reading... Uh... So, like, the way the battle developed, uh, Manstein was able to p- put a lot of forces around Kharkov. And uh, I'll just say, like, when I was reading this, it, it struck me as remarkable that this is almost exactly what Zog just did in the Ukraine, put a bunch of forces at Kharkov and then pushed eastward, roughly, uh, along the the northern flank of the Donats, because that was able, yes. that, like, cuts off several, like, roads and back then would have also cut off a lot of railroads to then, like, that you needed to supply troops yeah. south of there. Well, Kharkov, so it, it, like the geography hasn't changed. and It was even more consequential back then. Kharkov was the fourth largest city in the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, right up there after Moscow, Leningrad, and Kiev. Um, it was a huge industrial and logistical hub. Um, and also, it was just a strategic position given, again, like try to visualize the geography here, the south of, of Ukraine, obviously, is up against the sea. From that position in Kharkov, you can strike south and threaten any force in the south there with encirclement. Exactly what Manstein is saying. Um, concentrating forces there, you have a better position than if you're in the south waiting to yourself be encircled from the north. Right, because from the south, you can't just strike... It's hard to strike northward because you'd have to cross the Donats. Whereas if you're in Kharkov, you're like going along the the north bank of the Donats. Right. And I actually, imagine is the main from, reason. From Kharkov, it's a very short jump to cut the major crossings at the Dnieper, uh, the major railroad crossings. This mm-hmm. is one of the things that Manstein was concerned with, like at um, Zaporozhia and uh, uh, the other major crossings. Uh, Dnieper. Petrovsk, maybe? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Um, and, the, and they actually did manage to cut these momentarily uh, in, in 43. Uh, it was quickly restored, but sort of underlined Monstein's whole idea in the first place was, yeah, that's the position where they can threaten the southern wing of the army from. It's not from an attack in the south. It's from an attack in the north. That's where we're threatened from. So he was able to get Hitler to go along with this eventually i mean hitler was was reluctant i mean he had to fight to get uh to get his plan approved and he wasn't able to get what he really wanted to do which was to draw the soviets in to uh like we we're saying draw them in around mariupol or or around the sea of azov and then chomp down on them from the right. north but he was able to at least like mass a bunch of forces at kharkov and withdraw army group a from or assist Army Group A and withdrawing from the Kuban right. and saved he them. Did, he did get Army Group A out. They eventually saw reason that they couldn't hold the Kuban or that there was no point in doing so. Um, so Manstein did manage to save what was left of Army Group South after the Stalingrad disaster. Um, 
course, with the loss of, of Sixth Army. And then, yeah, so so what we're getting to, of course, is the... Was it the Third Battle of Kharkov? Yeah. So the, the Third Battle of Kharkov is, like, Monstein's masterstroke. Like, probably after... I mean, he's very famous for the Crimean campaign, but the Third Battle of Kharkov is where his sort of tactical genius is really on full display, uh, which I think is kind of funny that he doesn't spend that much time on it in in his book. Um, but this is this is the backhand blow in action. So in, in forty three, on the on the heels of their victory at Stalingrad, uh, the surrender of the Sixth Army, the Soviets have freed up a ton of reserves, and they they basically throw them all at Kharkov, at, as Manstein predicted, the northern wing of Army Group South. They try to strike towards the Dnieper and get very close to cutting off Army Group South, uh, which reconstituted from Army Group A, B, and Don. Uh, Manstein has put an overall command in 43. Uh and so the Soviets are trying to strike toward the Dnieper, the river that goes through the center of Ukraine, through Kiev, down to the Black Sea. Because right. if they can get there, they can cut off like the ger- every German formation in southeast Ukraine from like Rostov all the way to uh, the Dnieper. Exactly. Um, and Manstein manages to beat them at this point around Kharkov. He, he gets them... As, as soon as the Soviets have committed to these offensive operations... Munstein comes and hits them from the south with the SS Panzer Corps and uh, I think 1st Panzer Army or 4th Panzer Army, whichever one was in the north at that point. Um, anyways, manages to basically rout the Soviet offensive forces, recaptures Kharkov uh, with the SS Panzer Corps, and basically restores the front line. Um, and this was this was exactly... And captures his, like 40,000 Russians or yeah, something. Yeah, it's, it's a huge victory. Oh, he does. He does remark that they captured fewer prisoners than before, but more. Um, oh, more killed. That's right, because a lot of he was saying a lot of um, a lot of these Russian troops were able to just get out of encirclements because it was winter, and everyone just hides in villages during the winter. And if you are willing right. to walk across open fields, no one's going to stop you. It was hard to keep a solid like interdiction line. But he also remarks that the the overall proportion of equipment that they captured was much higher in terms of like guns, tanks, trucks, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, and this was the point where he started getting sort of very concerned about how much stuff the Soviets now had, um, how much better equipped they were than in, let's say, 41 after their initial defeats, where they're basically down to rifle divisions. Mm-hmm. Um, now they have tanks, they have guns, and a lot more of them sort of per capita than the Germans do. But anyways, um, so Third Battle of Kharkov is where he really displays this this backhand blow. Um, pretty much ends the, the Soviet offensive in uh, on the heels of Stalingrad. Right, because uh, this was, what, mid to late February, and mid to late March is when it gets muddy and you can't really do anything. Yeah, exactly. Um and this is also going to lead on, uh, if you want to continue, to uh, the Battle of Kursk. Right. Because this, this counteroffensive around Kharkov uh, is what creates the salient in the line at Kursk that's going to be so consequential in the summer of 1943. Right. Okay. So it by taking Kharkov, they've like straightened out the line 
And now uh, there's a, a Soviet salient, a Soviet bulge in the line where the Soviet troops have pushed forward around Kursk. And the to- the eastern Kursk front being is directly north of Kharkov. Yeah. And so you're looking at like the uh, eastern front is pretty much a straight line from roughly Leningrad and then big bulge at Kursk and then straight down through Kharkov to, uh, I guess, basically to the Sea of Azov. To the Sea of Azov, yeah, because yeah. they've abandoned Rostov at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah they were forced to abandon. Um, I think they're still holding the Mules line at mm-hmm. this point, which is... A little tiny river that flows into the Azov Sea. Yeah, it basically runs directly north-south. Um, it's just just uh, to the west of Rostov, I guess, in the uh, in in the Donbass region. Though. Yeah, west of Mariupol. Yes. So, anyway. So, yes, anyway, uh, Kursk. Kursk. The... Very, very interesting perspective from Manstein. So the, the, just going through the basics first, uh, the Battle of Kursk is the last time that the Germans held the initiative on the Eastern Front. Uh, so in, in 43, you know, the, the German offensive power, they're no longer capable of attacking on all fronts or even of carrying on a, a, a major strategic offensive with only one army group, uh, like it did in 42. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, in, in 41, of course, all three army groups are making strategic offensives uh, under their own power. In 42, they can only muster one army group, Army Group South, to conduct a major offensive. In 43, they need Army Group Center and South to cooperate to make an offensive. So their, their offensive power has been whittled down, but it's still there. Um and the basic objective is the city of Kursk uh, around this this uh, Soviet salient, which is right in the middle of Army Group's center and south. The objective is for Army Group center to push south, for Army Group south to push north. They're going to meet up at Kursk, cut off a huge number of Soviet divisions in that bulge, and, uh, and therefore to try to force a stalemate on the Eastern Front. It's the best they can hope for at this point. Right. Manstein is in charge of the Southern Pincer. And now it's quite interesting because the conventional wisdom on this is that Kursk was sort of doomed from the start. The Soviets were too well dug in. They knew the Germans were coming. Uh, the Germans were attacking right into the teeth of a prepared enemy defense, and they didn't have a chance. They right. Took- this is basically what Guderian says in his memoir, which you know we talked about last time, how he his opinion was... All of those things, plus the fact that planning had taken so long, they'd completely lost the element of surprise. Maybe yeah. if they had attacked a few months earlier, it would have been fine. But by waiting to July of 43 to launch uh, Operation Citadel, it was just it was a foregone conclusion the Germans are going to lose. And Manstein agrees that they probably waited about a month too long, like waiting for new tanks, basically. Um, and he sort of makes a comment about how Hitler always had this tendency to think that technical solutions would win these battles when really what they needed was it's more very, divisions. God, it's such a bug man thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, not to insult, you know, our Fuhrer, but well, he, <laughs> it's kind of like a, the bohemian like nerd thing is, so, well, if we just, uh, if we just organized our cities differently, we wouldn't have like problems with uh, all these Nero's. Like, uh, you know, this new tank looks cool. It's totally going to win us the war, guys. Um, 
but I mean, I don't yeah. know. I think Guderian himself was kind of prone to that. Uh, well, we all are. I mean, it's it's yeah. like a it's a universal yeah, yeah, white yeah. man thing where it's like, oh, this is a really awesome like thing. We're we're gonna win with this. Anyway, so I've I've said what the the conventional wisdom is. The Germans were destined to lose because the the Soviets were too well dug in. Manstein doesn't think so. Manstein actually thinks that they were winning, uh, right up until. So basically, what's what's going on at the same time as this uh, is the Allies have invaded Sicily, and in response to this invasion, Hitler comes in, goes to Manstein and says, "Like I'm pulling the SS Panzer Corps." out of the line we need to send them to italy uh and this totally derails the offensive around kursk and monstein basically blames this for the failure of kursk because the because manstein's pincer was was driving hard up and was still he was still advancing advancing right the 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 attack from army group center had stalled out but monstein was still going uh so he feels like his victory was pulled away from at the last second by this this interference um and that's that's an interesting it's an interesting thought because again, it, I mean, it cuts across the conventional wisdom. But I mean, Monstein was the guy who was actually there. I I sort of trust his uh, his perspective on it. Um, and and what if that had been successful, right? I mean, the Soviets had like an obscene amount of divisions crammed. I was into like that fifty salient. German divisions were involved at Kursk, if I remember that correctly. Right. So it, it must a, have been double the Soviets. Yeah, like double that number. Two or for three Soviets. times that. Um, and the those were probably pretty depleted units because they'd been fighting nonstop since Stalingrad. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm sure a tremendous amount of, of uh, military power concentrated in that pocket or what could have been a pocket if Manstein had continued advancing. Now, if that happens, if Kursk gets retaken, those Soviet forces get cut off. That's most of the Soviet offensive power. Now, in, in the winter of 43, or the, the fall and winter of 43, which is where the Soviets won huge advances in the south. They pushed the whole way to the Dnieper. Uh, if that threat to the northern flank of Army Group South had been destroyed, as Manstein desired, could they have forced a stalemate? I mean, it's an open question, but it certainly couldn't have hurt. Hmm. Yeah, uh, what's interesting about reading you know books like like this one is uh i've seen some there's some criticism of what we're doing right now because what we're doing is the how could the germans have won the war which in a way has been like the whole theme of all of this literature like manstein's book or guderian's book and i know it's come under some criticism from academic historians people like uh david glance uh if you have you ever read him at all I don't recall. I, mean, I have I know the name. He's, I, I can't say he's a Jew, but I've looked at his photograph and he has the, he I mean, has certain David, aspects. David Glantz. Well, and the I'm name does suggest assume. it as well. Um, but he's like a major academic historian and, and former military officer. And he's a big historian of like so, uh, the Soviet uh, effort in World War II. And uh, he's... He criticizes the whole perspective of trying to uh, reanalyze things from like how could Germany have won the war? But I mean, like, what else are you going to talk about? Like, that's the point of history. Is uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, for one thing, again, Manstein's book is called "Lost Victories." I mean, it's sort of the point. Uh, we can hardly avoid it in in discussing it, retreading the old "What could the Germans have done 
to win because it's exactly what he's talking about is these are the critical moments where things could have gone a different way. Um, I mean, the, the broader point that you can make about it, which I think he, he attempts to do throughout, is to explain how command decisions have a, a very pronounced and ongoing effect on military affairs, right? And this is something that we can take valuable lessons away from. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, Monstein's whole idea of operational freedom, like that's, that's the number one thing that he, that he wanted. And of course, he proved the concept, as we've already discussed in, in France, where given the operational freedom to act, the Panzer forces won that entire campaign with, with one daring race to the sea, right? And, and Monstein was like, was, and you could maybe even criticize him, him for this. You could turn it around on him where he says, you know, Hitler was obsessed with clinging to every last inch of ground because that worked for him once before. Monstein was always chasing that great victory from like a, a bold operational maneuver, right? That's, that's what he wanted. And being tied into, being tied down to geographical objectives like he was by high command just stuck in his craw. He he hated it. He blamed it for every failure. He, and he thought that, that the solution to all of these difficulties was to restore operational freedom and deliver some sort of coup de grace by bold maneuvers in yeah, he thought open Ger- space. He thought probably correctly that Germany's main advantage was its superior uh, maneuverability. And so why not take advantage of that and try to right. uh, beat the Russians in that way? And not only maneuverability in terms of just like having vehicles or whatever, which in fact they were mostly inferior in that compared to their opponents, more about command and control, the boldness of their commanders, right? The, the ability of their officers to keep tight control over their forces, get them where they needed to be, right? In that way, they had superior mobility. Mm-hmm. I yeah, think he, he, I think it's an interesting point because you know it's often remarked how how far ahead like the Western armies were in their technical ability to move one thing, to move things from one place to another, um, but the Germans had had the sort of tactical ability to uh, to outmaneuver their opponents. Yeah, he mentions uh, that he you know, the the standard thinking in in all of German warfare had been this mission tactics. Uh, and that if Hitler had given, I mean, this is the main, the the main argument of his whole book is that if Hitler had given him and other commanders a little bit more trust to carry out their mission as they saw fit and then allow the, allow the procedure to work like down the chain of command so that lower level officers were given the authority to act within their own sphere and just given a broad mission of like, I need you to capture that town or I need you to beat these Soviet armies, do it however you see fit, that they could have won the war. And I mean, this is, it's reading his book, it's hard to disagree with him. Uh, He makes a very good case for it. And, you know, it, it does make sense that that sort of structure always worked for, always had worked for Germany and, you know, given their limited resources, that that was the way to do things, uh, devolve power to the lower lower levels and not try to exhaustively dictate outcomes to your uh, subordinate formations. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, 
I always want to be careful when we're talking about these uh, German generals' memoirs because, of course, the other side doesn't get to be heard here. You know, Hitler didn't get to write right. his memoirs talking about how the generals always screwed up his brilliant plans. Uh, it's always the generals claiming the opposite. True. But, he but, does He does have a point here, but... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I mean, Munchlein does make good points. And obviously... Well, I mean, maybe it's not obvious to everybody, but Hitler was not perfect. He didn't always make the perfect decision. Yeah, as hard as it is <laughs> to admit. As hard as that yeah. is to, to swallow, <laughs> I know, I know. Uh. <laughs> but uh, Manstein does, he does, he not as bad as Guderian, but he does have a few bitter bitch moments. Well, he he is bitter about certain things, and I think understandably so, because they lost the war, and, and it's natural for him to to put some amount of the blame for that on Hitler. Um, but anyways. Yeah, okay, so, well, let's, uh, let me just pull up one of his, he criticizes Hitler, he sort of goes, one spot where he criticizes Hitler, I think, was very hard to not see as being just a complete contradiction of himself. So he says that Hitler was bad at, Hitler didn't, have the heart to go see the front line and see all the suffering and dying that was going on. He says that, but then in the next, in the same like paragraph, he says, oh, but Hitler didn't want to go to the front because if he did, then he might feel sympathy for all of the men and then not be able to make the hard decisions that he needed to make as commander in chief. So he's like accusing Hitler of being too soft hearted, but also of being like a callous asshole. Yeah. At I the same time, which it, it I almost really almost in the, how to process that almost that in the same paragraph he says this well i think part of so like what he's saying precisely is that he his opinion of hitler is that he didn't have the sympathy for the soldiers on the front that his obsession with like economic statistics and production figures had had led him to consider the lives of soldiers to just be more numbers on a ledger right indications of combat strength nothing more mm -hmm. um and that that he raised this to someone else another officer who was close to hitler uh some staff liaison or something and that that officer disagreed with him uh in in fairly harsh terms and said no the reason why he doesn't go to the front is because he's like soft-hearted like he he has to make these difficult decisions and he can't allow his thinking to be clouded by his sympathy for the people that are suffering right right which i i think is the much more realistic answer uh there's also the third alternative answer that i mean the man was busy with a lot of things other than making visits to the front well it's some unclear purpose. you know first of all it's like if you're con concerned with the fate of the whole nation uh, you know, it sounds callous, but you can't concern yourself with casualties at, like on a personal level. You have to be like, well, uh, that's horrible, but we need to win the war. If we if we lose 10 percent, 20 percent of our military force, that's horrible. But if we win the war, like that's what matters. I mean, it, you just have to be almost like ruthless like that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people had died already and a lot more were going to have to die if they wanted to forestall well, what actually happened to Germany, which obviously you would pay pretty much any price in in fighting men to prevent. 
Yeah, if you knew what was going to happen, which Hitler did did have a pretty good idea, but it oh, seems like knew, a lot of his subordinates well didn't happen to Germany if they lost, and they were right. Uh, there is also the point that I mean, this is a sort of a, phil- a philosophical point. A lot of people have made have said this, but basically, if you're a the only people with the capacity to feel the smarter you are, the more capacity you have to feel sympathy for people. Now, that's not saying that all smart people do feel sympathy because there are plenty of sociopaths who don't. Of course. But the great geniuses of world history like Hitler or uh, Goethe or, I don't know, Marcus Aurelius or you know Alexander are the ones who have the most capacity to feel sorry for other people. And this is why if you are that guy responsible for the fate of a whole nation, you can't allow yourself to get sucked in you know to you have to hold yourself at a little bit of a distance yeah you have right. and and this is a point that otherwise you yeah. can't make clear decisions so uh so whatever the case may be i yeah i'm not going to crit- criticize hitler for not exposing himself to the front line and, and no one can accuse hitler of being a coward or of not of of not feeling sympathy for other men because i mean he did it in world war one right know, he could certainly put himself in the shoes of, of the men at the front line. He had been there, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that he was overflowing with sympathy, but it's certainly a point, you know, that would lead one to believe that, that he understood their position. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, like we were saying, like there's, there's a, there's a note of bitterness in Monstein saying this, uh, and it ties into his, um, his recurring complaints about, High command, not understanding the situation that he was presented with, and um, and sort of closing their ears against his arguments, and and so ultimately he's not saying anything more than that. Well, I and the men under my command had to pay for these decisions, and they didn't understand, you know, what was really happening. Which I mean, maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't, maybe they understood full well, and. <laughs> military priorities being what they were those men simply had to hold their ground and and suffer and there there wasn't two ways two ways about it and i think it's worth noting on that point that for as much as some of the officers will complain about hitler's obstinacy in ordering uh various forces to hold their ground like to the last bullet if needs be um in many cases did avert larger crises by at least presenting the Soviets with enough resistance to prevent them from completing encirclements, large encirclements, right? The biggest one they ever got was Stalingrad. Um, and as, uh, as Monstein notes, and there's even maybe a, a hint of self-doubt in his noting of this, that the resistance of Sixth Army in Stalingrad did prevent the overall encirclement of, uh, of the forces on, on their southern wing. Um, and that the breakout, an attempted breakout itself, held a lot of risks that those forces would be annihilated in open ground. Mm-hmm. And then where would that leave them? Yeah, right? then you, you just have a route situation and the Russians are just quickly pursuing and then maybe chasing you like into your own lines. Right. I mean, then at that point, maybe you lose the entirety of Army Group A. Yeah. So is, is it rational at, at that point to order the forces in Stalingrad to hold their ground? Well, Maybe. I mean, Manstein seems to at least entertain that possibility. He also notes that, uh, you know, the Russians were not able to achieve a decisive victory in South Russia in 42-43. Now, that's 
largely thanks to him, but it's also thanks arguably to the stand your ground policy. Yeah. I mean, of course, Monster. It would, well, it would have been maybe absurd to say stand your ground on, you know, Mount Elbrus or whatever. But oh, sure, sure. <laughs> and of course, Monstein wants to say that, well, what we should have pursued instead was what I wanted to do, which was this elastic defense, hit them on the backhand kind of thing that would have been better. And um, what you could have done with like th- four to eight weeks, like lead time and planning. So one of his other complaints is that the higher levels of command, like OKW, didn't seem to be thinking more than three days into the future. They were just like running around, putting, trying to clean up problems as they occurred. Whereas at least his staff was thinking about, well, how is this going to work in four to eight weeks? Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. He had like the just constant complaint that they never, high command never knew what they wanted to do next. Um, at least not to any extent where the, uh, where either he or any of the other field commanders could anticipate what was going to be expected of them or what the overall purpose of their actions right. was. Which is a, a huge problem. And that's one of the, th- the great things about reading books like this. Uh, you know, it seems like a lot of minutiae that don't really matter anymore. But the great thing about uh, Manstein is that you're seeing he understands all of the little bullshit that has to happen in the middle of the organization at the levels of lieutenants and captains and majors in order to make any big thing come off. And that's why he's, you know, like any good general, why he's been advanced to general, because he understands all the little things at every level of command and like why doing some big operation like the third battle of Kharkov will work and why keeping uh, Army Group A in in the caucuses won't work. And it's easy for us in a way to like armchair general general it here like we are. well, but again, but, like this is the reason but, why his stuff is still taught at, at military academies today is because he notes. I mean, it's sort of in contrast because it, because he explains how and right. you, you when you when you understand him fully and like how why is that decision the correct decision? It's like oh wow okay yes all all of these supply issues and personnel issues and uh, command and control issues like how do big organizations actually function? Right in that way, he's much more insightful than Guderian. I mean, that's that's. For sure, uh, which is not even necessarily a knock against Guderian. I mean, in a backhanded way, it kind of is. But Monstein is is very insightful on these kinds of issues of, uh, well, everything that you've just said. I mean, he understands how the whole machine works, and he explains it to you uh, in a way that's that's understandable and that relates it to the problems that it actually causes in the field when things aren't done the right way. Yeah, because one of his main criticisms of Hitler was he kept pushing throughout the war to have... Manstein kept pushing for Hitler to restructure the command, uh, the uh, upper levels of the military so that there would be Hitler as supreme commander, but then a general staff, a chief of the general staff who would report directly to Hitler, uh, who would be organized, who would basically, I guess, be in charge of OKW and be controlling all of the planning for at the strategic level for the entire right. German uh, military apparatus. And the main thing that... And then just one more thing, and then also a supreme commander on the Eastern Front. Uh, uh, Yeah. That's the two things he was pushing for. Or at least it's an alternative. Later on, when he had sort of despaired of getting Hitler to appoint an actual chief of staff, he was like, at least put someone in charge of the Eastern Front. Mm -hmm. Uh, His main reason for that being that Hitler or the rest of the high command were very bad about issuing orders in a timely fashion. Right. That was the main thing that he needed was 
when he when he was faced with a situation that required immediate resolution, he couldn't accept an answer in three days or a week. Right. He needed authority to take action now. Like you need to get that army group A back to the area of Stalingrad by this day. Right. Because we know that if we do that, then we can evacuate them. If right. we don't or, get that order right now, it's going to, well, we know it's going to take us say 10 days to, or two weeks, three weeks, whatever, to move all of those divisions back to this particular line. We need the information now. That is a definite constraint. And if you don't give us the order to do so, then the things that we could have done with that information now just can't happen. Right. And it's like, exactly. it's, it's, Things I don't know. Don't like people, instantly. it's right. crazy. He, he's anticipating we're going to need these guys for this operation that we're expecting three weeks from now. High command isn't thinking that far ahead, and so they're not going to approve that order until it's too late. They won't be there on time, and then the whole thing is botched. It's actually right. crazy to me that uh, Manstein talks about uh, a four to eight week lead time, and you're talking about a commander of like a third of the Eastern Front, and he's working with only a 48 he is thinking right, about only right. four to eight weeks ahead <laughs> his superiors are not even thinking that far ahead which is insane because it's like you would think the government would be thinking three months three years ten years ahead i mean it's actually we have the same problem uh right, Z- zog the has the same way. problem does zog think yeah. 10 years ahead i mean the chinese do but it's sort of the opposite of what you would anticipate you would think that the person at the most abstracted highest level of responsibility would have like the widest possible view of the situation and the lower you went down the chain of command, the less far ahead they'd be thinking. Well, that's how it's supposed to work. Right. That is how it's supposed to be. And I guess that's ultimately the source of his complaint is why why am I the one doing long term planning here? Right. Um, that doesn't make any sense. It's not functional. And uh, right. One yeah, can anyways. one can sympathize with uh, that predicament. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, in that vein, do we want to talk about the uh, yeah? Let's talk about Battle of Britain. Uh, and, yeah, uh, Operation Sea Lion. So we mentioned earlier that Manstein has an unusual take, an unusual opinion regarding Kursk. He thought that Kursk could have been won if they just stuck to it, or if they attacked a little early. It could have been won, but that they were on the verge of winning. He said they'd committed their reserves. We had them on the ropes. Right. Mm. He also has an unusual opinion on. Uh, Operation Sea Lion. Sea Lion being, for those who don't know, the German code name for their planned invasion of uh, the island of Great Britain. All right. So what's the so, how how is that one possible? Because what they told me in history class was that uh, this was just a German pipe dream, a fantastical idea that could never have been carried out because of the British Royal Navy. Yeah, I mean that's the conventional wisdom is that this was a total. I mean, LARP one, one that they were never serious about it, which I mean, that part's possibly true. Um, but the other is that it was just utterly impossible. Any planned or any attempted German invasion would have just resulted in, you know, all of their boats at the bottom of the channel. Um, Munstein disagrees. Uh, for one thing, he argues that it's the only it's actually the only logical conclusion after the fall of France, you have to invade Britain if you want to bring this war to a close. Because even invading the Middle East in force, which he sort of said was was still a better option than just sitting around and waiting, mm. um, is not going to actually force Britain to make peace, right? The only thing that could compel them to do that is the invasion of Britain itself. Yeah, they were, God knows they were willing to sacrifice, you know, millions of Bengalis. Yeah. 
or even even failing that, if if the Brits, if the, the if the Royal Navy sails to Canada and tries to carry on the fight, well, the occupation of Great Britain is going to prevent any invasion of the continent. It's just not possible for them to pose a serious threat to you at that point. Um, but his basic point was that they could have done this if they only started planning for it before France had fallen, like in in like June. He said if they had started planning by June, they could have pulled it off in early August. Because in the event they didn't start planning until July, they weren't ready until September. And at that point, basically weather was going to prevent them from uh, from making a serious crossing. Uh-huh. So basically lack of a general staff or lack of uh, authority vested in OKW prevented right. that those plans from being made. Or in other terms, lack of unified strategic planning. Um, the failure to marshal all assets to an objective that was conceived in advance and prepared for. Uh, it basically says they had no idea what to do. After we occupied France, the high command and Hitler had no idea of what the next step was. Uh, and they were improvising. And therefore, we were too late. To mount this invasion, what's well, I mean, they, totally possible. Forget about invading Britain. I mean, he mentions they hadn't really even thought beyond what they would do if they cut off the French and British armies in Belgium. Like they hadn't. They were like, yeah, well, once we do that, like we win. Uh, and he Manstein well, says no, and not necessarily. Like the French could have made a second line on like the Seine or something, and then and held held on to two thirds of the country. Uh, that, I mean, that one's a little bit more defensible. I think even Manstein says that like. Look, at a certain point, like they they had lost. Um, there was really nothing that, like, even if they had put up a more determined resistance than they did, it, it was over after that. But I mean, anyways, the the, and I think we could also tie uh, Dunkirk into this. Um, Monstein, you know, has it related to this overall failure of strategic planning. Um, says that the failure to liquidate the British at Dunkirk was a huge mistake. Um, of course, it wouldn't have mattered if they still were going to delay this far and carrying out the invasion. But if, that, if they had done that, which mostly involves Hitler not listening to Goering, uh, who said that he could prevent the evacuation with air power alone. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Monstein, Monstein absolutely loathes Goering, just hates him. Um, Which I feel like is more of a personal thing, just because Manstein really strikes me as one of these sort of uptight uh, Northern Europeans, not like a fun uh, bro like Goering was. Yeah, I think well, it's it's just personal resentment, really. Goering might have been fun at parties, but um, I mean, between Dunkirk and the other big thing that Goering screwed up was uh, when the Sixth Army was surrounded. Well, by yeah, yeah, we all know that one. Well, I don't know if everyone does it. I mean, at least let me make the point quickly. Uh, Goering promised that he could supply the entire army by air. He said, yep, the Luftwaffe can handle it. No worries. In the event, they got like maybe a quarter of what Goering promised. And Monstein's point is that Goering really had no idea. Like he didn't even have a rational basis for making the promise that he did. He was just being his, his boastful and uh and ignorant self uh i mean couldn't he just have asked to maintain his standing who is this guy uh milch right was uh, goring uh, goring's number two at the Luftwaffe? Milch? yeah was he 
I don't know if he was replaced by Ernst Dudet or one of the other guys at that point. No, I, I think it was it was Milch. I remember this from. Did uh, he die in a plane crash though? No, I that, don't know. You might be right. Uh, you're I don't pick, know much about the Luftwaffe. Uh, he uh, he basically like ran things for Goering because he had a mind for detail and organization. And I mean, he would have he would have thought he Goering could have just asked like, well, "Hey, I can think, we supply the Sixth Army at Stalingrad? Do we have that transport capacity?" I think Monstein addressed that, and he said that basically he personally asked him like what was going on. Goering like, asked Manstein. No, Monstein asked Goering's like chief oh, of staff, yeah. and the chief of staff was like, "I don't know. Nobody asked me about this. <laughs> like it, it, insanity, insanity." I mean, you know, I can't blame him for for resenting Goering. I mean, how many men did Goering get killed in in friggin' Stalingrad? And and how much how many problems did he cause by letting the British slip away at Dunkirk? Like, if you or, want to lay the blame at anyone's feet, he seems like a good candidate. Well, don't forget about the Luftwaffe field divisions. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that. So, at, like, the same time period when Monstein is, like, screaming for reinforcements because he's, like, outnumbered 8 to 1 on the Southern Front and he doesn't have enough men to hold the line, uh, Goering is is putting 170,000 men into Luftwaffe field divisions. Basically, like, imagine the Air Force just raising, like, infantry divisions with, like, artillery... And and machine guns tomorrow, and like they're gonna go into well, I mean, combat. I don't know. The army has helicopters. Why not? Well, I mean, for one thing, they don't have any experience. <laughs> I mean, this is the biggest thing they identified is they have no officers with any combat experience whatsoever. They were basically useless as infantry. Like they they accomplished absolutely nothing when they were sent to the front, except tying up valuable manpower. Um, so uh, I guess you're saying this was a vanity project. Yeah, it was a vanity project. They had no combat value whatsoever. And uh, it was just more of Goering being arrogant and screwing up the rest of the war effort. Like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is a, a good example. Like, never uh, never put your personal friends in charge of an entire branch of your military forces. Because um, I think Hitler just wasn't willing to crack down on him hard enough. Hmm. Well, yeah. Monstein also connects that with, again, going back to... So I guess that's for two strikes against Goering. Guderian hated him and Manstein hated him. Yeah, I mean, I think basically everyone who wasn't in the Luftwaffe hated him. Maybe even some of them, too. Um, But Monstein connects that to the overall failure in strategic planning because he says, essentially, after the Battle of Britain and and the invasion of the Soviet Union, it was clear that we were not preparing for a strategic air war. They were in 1940, and they changed their minds. Only, the Luftwaffe never actually had resources routed away from it. So they just had this 170,000 extra men sitting around, and there was no competent supreme command to say, okay, our strategic priorities have shifted. These men are going to the army instead. Right? Like, that's... Right. That's sort of the issue. So, uh, Goering notwithstanding, how was Operation Sea Lion ever going to happen? Well, so basically, um, you know, Monstein with his typical sort of cavalier attitude towards uh, logistical problems um, says basically, well, our small ships, like what, what naval forces that we have, along with the Luftwaffe, 
could certainly hold the channel open for long enough for at least the first wave of transports to get across. Against that, at that time, the British had basically nothing to oppose them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he says, well, if the British expedition, British expeditionary force had not escaped, then they would have had literally nothing. Uh, but in any event, they had lost all their heavy weapons. There was no serious opposition to be expected. You know, this wasn't Omaha Beach they were going to be marching into. It was basically almost undefended coastline. Right. White Cliffs of Dover and what? Yeah. Yeah. Not, nothing. There was nothing in their way besides the channel. As long as they could get across it, they were fine. Uh, now, the reason why this is possible is that the the main part of the British fleet can't just sit in the channel and, and blockade you, Right because they're themselves going to be vulnerable to air attacks, to attacks with submarines and small ships. So the main part of the British fleet is the whole way up north at Scapa Flow, on the northern tip of Scotland. Right. When you, so long as you can ensure a, a bit of surprise, those ships are not going to be able to make it south in time to oppose a landing. Right. right? The, the worst possibility is that they can intercept the second wave if you're mm-hmm. not quick enough, or you can't oppose them with enough forces to prevent them from just steaming into the channel. Yeah. But you can certainly get that first wave over, and Monstein thinks at that point, that would have been enough. Like, and what, how many men are we talking on first wave? Uh, or how many, how, many, how many men in material? I think like seven divisions were earmarked for the first wave. Uh-huh. Uh, so division is roughly eight to 10,000 men. Uh, I, I think. And how point, do you, I mean? What's the resupply plan there? Just pillage. Uh, airdrops, barges, like destroyers, whatever you can get, right? But this is this is what he's saying: is it? It sort of doesn't matter how difficult it is. You're going for broke here. You get those divisions on the island. The British have no serious military forces to oppose them. You get them supplies any way that you can. You airlift. You use destroyers to bring stuff across. You, you hell, you use submarines. I mean whatever you can get them they can win right they can take london they can they can eventually get enough of a beachhead um or capture some air bases right drive the enemy's planes off and you have command of the channel right you occupy their ports you can do whatever you want you can win that campaign interesting he's basically saying that's not the hard part the hard part was that the preparations to actually get them across in the first place that's what was impossible and it was only made impossible because they didn't even start the planning until it was too late their window had closed ah yeah that's ooh. don't don't think of it that way often i never thought of it that way yeah i mean it's it's interesting it is it, it it befits his perspective on on other things that he's very cavalier about the problems of the campaign itself Again, just, well, I mean, just like I mean, in France. I think I said earlier, like he he can be cavalier about logistics because well, he's he, con- he's confident in the ability of the German. He, he understands what's be- happen, he is understands right? what's below him, and yeah. he he knows that they can figure it out. Yeah, and I think that's a good quality in a commander. I think that's something that he had in spades. I mean, he knew that he could rely. He knew exactly what he could rely on his men to do. I mean, Mussolini also was cavalier about logistics. Well, on the other hand. Mussolini only had the Italian army to rely on, so maybe that was a mistake on his part. Right. That's that's just the one point I'm trying to make. <laughs> All right. So uh, to to wrap up, I just think we ought to briefly mention uh, Manstein's career after Kursk and after the war. 
and then just draw some lessons about uh, what Manstein means for us today. So basically, after Kursk, it was just sort of more of the same. It was Manstein wanting to have op- more operational freedom and not getting it and things going badly. Well, after, after Kursk, it is a complete nightmare. I mean, with forces pulled off to Italy, um, yeah, that campaign is over. The, the Russians put up a tremendous pressure on them. Uh, they, they're continually forced to fall back. They try to hold the, the so-called Panther Line along the Dnieper. Um, it's the, the Soviet breakthrough at Kiev that really almost seals the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hitler keeps expecting or keeps saying to Munstein, basically, just hold on. The Russians, will, they'll run out of steam eventually. They've been attacking nonstop since, you know, the start of 43. They've got to stop sometime. Which is, yeah, not really <laughs> to which, something to bet on if they're getting more and more resources and more and more men. and Right. Munchen's more and more reply to this is competence. basically like, listen, put yourself in their position. Would you stop attacking? Uh, and, and so he wants to continue withdrawing, dealing backhand blows where they can. Um, but they're stretched so thin, I think even that is improbable that they're going to be able to muster enough forces. Uh, he does echo Guderian on one point, which is that the mobile forces, that is the Panzer and Panzer Grenadier divisions, are constantly being thrown into defensive battles, mm-hmm. where, in his opinion, their strength is being wasted. Right. They need to, as they'd done successfully before, amass them in one or a couple large concentrations and use them for counterattacks yeah. rather than trying to hold ground with them. That makes sense. So, I mean, I, I guess from Manstein's point of view, really the whole war was lost because of a failure of strategic level planning. I or mean, if we're, by if, recurrent failures in strategic planning. Yeah, if we... It wasn't just one thing. Well, that's what I mean, on ongoing yeah. failures. Like the fact that they didn't have... That nobody was thinking about how things need to happen next year or the year after. Uh, I mean, arguably, Hitler was thinking about that, but you can't just have one man thinking about that. Uh, I mean, other people were thinking about it, but they didn't have the the authority to implement anything or to actually work on the problem. Or, I mean, those people weren't even in a position to have the full picture in many cases, right? Hitler alone had the full view of things because he didn't have... Again, like a chief of staff in charge of the OKW. Everyone else had their own subordinate duties to concern themselves with. No one else got reports from everyone. No one else was able to assemble the complete picture. Mm -hmm. Uh, After the war, Manstein was, well, he was fired by Hitler, uh, I think in 1944, and basically just sat out the last few months of the war. Yeah, I mean, it was decided at that point. They'd been driven back into like Romania and Poland um, and from that point onwards, I mean, really from the start of 44 onwards, it was a series of desperate defensive battles in which the Germans threw everything they had just to hold them back for another day. Yeah. Uh, so Manstein was captured, uh, arrested, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to say. And he was tried in 1948 or 1949 and sentenced to, I think, 18 years in prison he ended up serving four, got released in 1953, and then uh, wrote his book after that, uh, 
And then he also was informally advised the West German uh, military, the Bundeswehr, which was formed in, I think, 1955 on setting up their military. But one of the interesting things about the legacy of Manstein is if you, you know, you're reading lost victories, you're expecting some sort of mention of like the Holocaust. I think especially uh, in, in light of some of uh, Manstein's animosity towards Hitler and some of the things that he said about him being callous or cruel or uncaring. Right. Right. Cause he's, he is playing a little bit to the Western audience by criticizing Hitler. So you would think that if he was going to criticize Hitler, he would, make the obvious point that Hitler killed, you know, six million Jews and stuff, which is... Or at is, least, like, I mean, if even if they hadn't decided on the six million figure quite yet, you would think that concentration camps would brook some some mention. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think we made the same point about Guderian. Um, you know, even even if only to distance the army from that, because that's the point that a lot of, a lot of commentators want to make, is that... Guderian and Manstein are perpetuating the myth of the clean Wehrmacht by blaming everything on the SS or Hitler or some other group. But they don't even mention concentration camps, not even in order to distance themselves from them. Right. And quite curious. It is curious as well that Manstein was convicted for, you know, war crimes because of activities carried out allegedly carried out by Einsatzgruppen in in his area of operations who weren't under his command who allegedly killed a bunch of Jews but i mean okay so one i don't know how like all right we'll assume that's true why why is he responsible for units that aren't directly subordinated to him i mean if if you're the governor of like West Virginia and an FBI agent in your area is diddling kids. Are you responsible? Like, I wouldn't hold that guy responsible. I would say that's the fucking FBI did that. Not right. Not the governor of West Virginia. Like, just because they're operating in your area, if they're not under your control, how are you guilty for that? Well, and this is where you get like the whole uh, uh, just following orders canard, right, if you will. Um, that that's that's not what these people were claiming. They weren't claiming, oh, I was just doing what I was told when I was killing all these Jews. They were saying, well, wait, hang on. I didn't do that. This wasn't even in my area of responsibility. The, their defense is, what did you expect me to do? Launch a full-blown insurrection against them? I mean, and, and Monstan makes this point over and over again, that even if I did entertain any thoughts of of overthrowing Hitler, the only result of that would have been that we would lose. How can that be my responsibility to ensure the defeat of my own nation? Yeah, how, how can you be held responsible for, yeah, you didn't stage a coup d'etat against your own government? Right. So right. I mean, a, that, that is their actual defense, right? Even assuming that these allegations against them are credible in the first place. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, fake and gay. Manstein died in, I think, 73. So he lived a good almost 30 years beyond the end of the war. Um and his stuff is strangely still read today. I mean, it, I'm I'm actually shocked that this stuff is still popular. I mean, at least I don't know if this is still right now true, but it was definitely true five or ten years ago that this stuff was still read in the military. And I mean, I think from reading the sections on the uh, on the Third Battle of Kursk, 
I mean, it's mean uncanny. Third Battle of Kharkov. Sorry, yeah. not Kursk, Kharkov. Other fucking uh, K places in uh, Slavland. But let me just pull this one part up about uh, where he's talking about what his rationale for doing a counterattack in the area of Kharkov. On 31st January, I sent over uh, Oberkomando de Sierras a teleprinter message restating my views on the problem of holding the Donets Basin. The prior condition for retaining it, I said, was that a timely attempt be made from the direction of Kharkov to relieve the pressure on us and that the enemy in the area northeast of the city be beaten before the muddy season set in. If, as fortunate, unfortunately seemed to be the case, neither of these should prove practical, there would be no possibility of holding the basin, at least not until its full extent, at least not to its full extent in the east. That is the Donetsk Basin. Any attempt to remain on the lower dawn of the Donets would thus be a mistake from the operational point of view. I just read that and I was like, this is exactly what just happened last week this or two weeks yep. ago yep. where they Zog, I don't know, scrambled together some Ukrainian forces or, or some uh, southern bros mercenaries in, in, in whatever uh, they in might Ukrainian be in uniforms, whatever, and just attacked going east from Kharkov. Yeah, they and, read his book. And they I wouldn't be surprised if they read his book. Or, I'm I mean, sure they did. I mean, a few people probably have. I mean, because even if they don't read this book anymore, every single officer, you know, of any higher station in the U.S. military right now has read it. At Do some you think Mark Milley's lives. read this book? Okay, he might have read the Spark Notes, <laughs> but I'm sure he's at least got a passing familiarity with it. But if they weren't studying this campaign... In, in light of the, the modern conflict in Ukraine, that would be, I mean, dereliction of duty, practically. Well, I mean, I don't know. I Maybe they have. I, my, the other theory is just that uh, they've uh, outsourced the planning to a massive network of computers who have, with millions of taxpayer dollars, exhaustively played out and wargamed every possible way of doing this, and the computers came to the same conclusion. I was going to say, wouldn't that be funny if... Uh, <laughs> if if all they really had to do was read Munstein's book to to find that same conclusion. I, I just I refuse to believe that Zog has like done anything that they didn't involve spending millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anything successful at least. But um uh seriously, uh, you know, it's we we talked about this with Guderian, but we'll talk about it again with Manstein. What is the value for us a bunch of uh I don't know, political dissident plebs who don't have multiple divisions and army corps at our disposal talking about great movements of troops in Eastern Europe fighting uh, millions and millions of uh, reds. Well, the basic reason I think is that the underlying principles of leadership and of organization are the same. Now, it's obviously different whether you're leading a group of 20 people, 30 people, 400 people versus leading a a well-organized institution and then also whether you're leading uh, people in uh, a furious, bloody battle or if you're leading them in a fake and gay uh, internet war. But the element of political coercion is there in either case. If you're yeah, a German... I mean, it's, it's, it's different, but maybe not so different. Or at least maybe it shouldn't be. If you, if you want to get anywhere, you should be taking notes on, on how great men in history have managed to lead groups of men right because it is situations is in a way just a more extreme version we're talking about a at least from a you know death and violence point of view a much more difficult situation 
Yeah, but the main thing I like about Manstein's book is the understanding of the mid-level planning uh, and the operational planning and also the the organization of the total state organism, which in the case of Germany just seemed to be lacking uh, between the Fuhrer and everyone else. There was no high there weren't there weren't really that high level um that high level planning and uh, delegation of tasks at the at the political and strategic level like there should have been and like there is in zog today i mean nope there's nobody in zog right now who is calling all the shots and having to master all of the information of of eco- economics and of foreign policy and of society and of diplomacy like nobody has to do that not even the president arguably i mean maybe that's partially a bad thing like there should be some centralization but at the same time Zog at least breaks down the tasks among different organs. Right. I mean, ideally, delegation does not uh, does not diminish authority. Right. In fact, it enhances it. Right. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. Any, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think it wraps it up for me. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Hans, and I hope the the people appreciate this autistic discussion of Nazi Soviet military history. I do want to talk uh, maybe in, fu- in a future podcast about some other military topics, but I want to sort of broaden ourselves from just the German stuff because the German stuff, you're dealing with people who are highly competent and highly, well, highly organized. And I think it's it would be uh, interesting to talk about, I don't know, maybe Chairman Mao and the Chinese communists or Fidel Castro or... I don't know, Russian partisan, some, a, a much less organized and uh, competent force and how you have to organize people like that. Because yeah. maybe that maybe, would be more... Maybe ab- something a little bit closer to uh, the task that we are faced with yes, as yeah. dissidents. Yeah. Uh, we're not quite the Wehrmacht. Yeah. Uh, don't be so cruel. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe some things in between. I really want to talk about the uh, Italian-Austrian front in World War One because it's something that I uh, have become interested in ever since i played battlefield uh what is it battlefield one battlefield one yeah. yeah yeah i was like wow this is really interesting why are there not movies about this i'm sure there's some old italian films or something I mean, yeah i don't know yeah but uh it's it's a whole front that's just not talked about you know i tried reading that hemingway book years ago and it was just about some jackass in his ambulance and like how he was <laughs> thirsting after this bitch and it's like what the fuck this isn't a book like this is lame well, i mean how many battles of the asanzo can you have before you're just sort of retreading the same ground right <laughs> uh for reference i believe there are about 12 not not certain on that though. yeah no i think it would, pr- 12 i think is the yeah, I think it was the 12th battle. Whatever. Yeah, there's a lot. But, you know, but it's still interesting. And, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some other stuff. But, anyway, thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Bis zum Endsieg. Oh,
God.